Hey everyone, Dave Putz here from JKP Holdings. Alongside me, Nathan Turner. How are you doing, my man? Very good, very good. Good, man. It's been an interesting week. Uh, yeah. We've got a lot going on. How are things with business this week? Anything new or exciting going on? I got four bids in. I'll hear back on Monday. We'll see how that goes. Hopefully, fingers crossed, I'll get my bids this time. CFDs, notes? Uh, these ones are... I think they're all CFDs, if I'm not mistaken. I'll have to double check. Whatever. I'm good with it. <laughs> it don't matter anymore. So um, I wanted to, you know, we're, we're in the process of actually buying a uh, CFD, um, two of them, and then a note uh, probably within the next couple of days. We're just and finalizing I, some of that stuff right now. And I know that makes it uh, worse. We're, we're going to be careful it's not something we're comfortable doing but we're gonna see what happens so yeah. um the ones you're buying are they in like a certain state or are they spread across? Uh, spread out a bit they are i'll tell you here yeah two in louisiana new mexico and texas and in fact uh they are actually all notes they're not cfds oh okay it's a little different yeah. Awesome. Yeah, looking forward to it. That should be good. So I think I think for me, you know, the notes world is, is scary because we don't know much about it, right? When we don't know something about it, we kind of get nervous and worried about what it looks like right? Um, and how to handle it. Almost like a new note investor. Yeah. But for me, CFDs became an opportunity because the prices were dramatically lower than notes in seconds. Yeah. And then you get in the world of the fact that CFDs are really close to notes, just a little bit off. So we want to know, like, could it increase the value by converting it from a CFD to a note? And the answer is yes. Where a lot of companies out there that we both know of will buy a performing note, but won't touch a performing CFD. So if we can just add that value of a note versus CFD, it's awesome. And then I, I even got, I can go a step further and go, I've this last year, year and a half, I've bought several lease options and I've converted a whole bunch of those lease options to CFDs. So just kind of going from one asset class to another, to another, and, and you can, uh, it's really not that difficult. The biggest thing Paper. is compliance. Yeah. And that's why we got max on. Yeah. Today. CFDs, lease options are all kind of the same thing, just a little bit of different paperwork. Yeah. And the idea we're looking to do is converting to a note in some cases makes a lot of sense and yeah. may get the fear out of people like us to get out of that world of, hey, it's a CFD, I can't buy it, to I can buy it and I can do XYZ with it to make myself feel more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And we had, I, I, I think most people know, uh, I started creating CFDs. That, that was my introduction to notes. And then, uh, in at a certain point there 2012 13 i forget the, the year and max will probably know then dodd frank came into effect yeah and uh at the time there was no such thing as a mortgage originator so so i was kind of dead in the water for there a little bit uh where i was originating beforehand but then i knew that dodd frank was in place and there were some rules in that had to be followed and i knew i needed a mortgage originator and so we asked around about uh if somebody could do that for us at the time and 
everyone was like, what are you talking about? What's Dodd-Frank? We got that. <laughs> and so it just, it took a few years uh, till we got guys like Max that, that can help make that happen and sign off where they need to sign off and make sure it's compliant. Interesting. So they came in the world of need. And yeah. then I think I first heard about called on the rider and it, as a like a TV commercial in my head, right? Um, and then it was all over the place. Didn't make me feel comfortable buying a CFD because I didn't connect the dots. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm not self finance. I'm not buying the loan. I'm not, you know, I'm not buying the property and converting it over. I don't need it. Yeah. And then lights went off. Wow, I can actually flip it over, but I'm still not comfortable buying that CFD. And I don't know what the process is. Don't know where it is. I'll just keep buying notes. Now we're seeing more and more CFDs. They're around. The opportunities around. So financing is around. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you can mod it. You can transition it. So just recently we got an email. I guess a couple months ago that called under changed names and things converted. So what we thought Nathan and I thought about doing is bringing on the new owners of Call the Underwriter and to explain a little bit about where they're from, the background, understand what they do understand what the process is a little bit and the compliance, which is the big thing here, understanding what you can and can't do with a borrower allows you to know if you can or can't write that paper and whatnot. So right. Max, welcome to uh, today's uh, live video. And can you share a little bit about your background, what you do, and just a little bit about the process? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. And uh Hello to all of you out there that uh, I haven't met yet. So, yeah, um, I'm the face of uh, Call the Underwriter, um, as much as that's probably not uh, to my advantage, but uh, it is what it is. So, <clears throat> anyhow, uh, well, we're out here in Montana, and so this is a uh, type of business that can really be run anywhere. We'll probably be doing some of it in Phoenix in the winters, I imagine, as well, and I'm actually sitting out in my cabin in the mountains right now. So about uh, half a mile from where the Unabomber used to live. So um, that's when you think of me, that's that's where you'll think of. So we're, we're tucked away. Um, similar beard, but a lot nicer. Uh, I don't I don't want to hurt nobody. Um, my uh, my background is uh, fairly diverse um, and actually uh, probably atypical of people in the finance world. Um, I spent around 30 years as a firefighter full-time, firefighter paramedic, um, but uh, I did get a finance degree and uh, because firefighters have so much time off, um, I spent 30 years with uh, about five days a week off and that enabled me to uh, start buying rental properties and uh, doing a whole lot with buying and selling of rentals, basically, uh, rehabs, flips, fixes. Um, and, and I still manage uh, the, the rental properties I have left today. So I didn't really do anything with seller finance per se. I mean, I did a few too, but I didn't know anything about um, this long before Dodd-Frank, but I didn't know anything about, um, you know, there being an actual industry in seller finance. I wasn't connected to any of these big networks like people are today, which I think is hilarious because I was doing it, but I didn't know anybody else was doing it. Yeah. Um, and so I was kind of a handyman, basically, you know, I would just look uh, around my state for uh, garbage. And uh, we had the fire department construction pool. 
So you could throw people a few bucks on their day off and they were happy to, to moonlight to come, you know, uh, rip stuff out for you and allow you to put stuff back together. And so I could remodel fairly cheap. Wow. And uh, yeah, so I built a rental property crop doing that. Um, so I got fairly familiar with um, commercial finance and uh, traditional finance and uh and a little bit about you like i said uh did some seller finance before i even really knew what it was mm -hmm. um and then uh dodd frank came out obviously in 2010 and things continued to get changed and refined all the way up through 2014 uh to where it looks a little bit more like it does today mm -hmm. and uh that's where russ got his start was uh in 2014 um, he was uh, involved already as an underwriter in the in the commercial world for Fannie and Freddie, and so he was plugged in with people that were doing uh, stuff in the note world, and so he sensed the need uh, to have somebody that understood Dodd Frank uh, help bring compliance and awareness to the seller finance community in the same way he was doing it for Fannie and Freddie in uh, traditional lending. And so that's how Call the Underwriter was born, was uh, people approached him since he had that knowledge and said, would you, uh, would you be interested in looking our stuff over and making sure it complies with Dodd-Frank? Um, and then obviously he built quite a machine um, and it, it quickly outgrew um, what he was capable of doing while he still works full-time in the commercial world. And uh, just uh, by total coincidence, uh, I had retired a year ago and had even more time on my hands than I've had for the last 30 years and thought, boy, this is not going to be good. I'm going to get myself in trouble uh, being fully retired. And uh, I can only drink so much beer and, and do so much motorcycle riding in the, in the mountains, you know, before my wife threatens divorce. So <laughs> Anyhow, so I started looking around online for businesses and uh, because I had a finance background, that was where I wanted to land. And uh, I ran into two or three different businesses. This one uh, through Russ and Elsie was one of them and uh, first jumped in just to do some work with them and see how the thing ran. And we did that for several months. And then uh, he made it known to me that he was interested in doing some other things. Plus, he was still working full time. And uh, so we said, well, why don't we just take the business off your hands? Um, we'll do it. I can do it from the mountains at the cabin. I can do it from Phoenix in the winter. I can do it from anywhere I want to do it. It's perfect for me. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we, we, a deal was uh, cooked up and uh, we officially took it over, I think, in uh, the end of December. So oh, good for you. That's cool. Yeah. Thank you. So, well, and then like we say, like really... Um, really what it comes down to is just compliance. Like, like whether you're going from a renter, brand new origination, renter to a CFD, CFD to a mortgage, what it really comes down to is just compliance and just making sure you're, you're following the rules. So uh, can you tell us about like, what are some of those things that we need to look at? Like, what are some of the rules? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't, I don't know a whole lot about your audience. And so I apologize in advance if I'm talking, um, dumbing it down too much um so i might be boring people but but i also don't want to say things that leave people saying i'm not sure why he's saying that or what that means so right. at the very very basics um dodd frank legislation uh came about 
post 07 and 08 in the housing bubble burst, right? We had all the uh, all the predatory lending going on. We had teaser rates. We had um, all kinds of things going on that were causing people to end up upside down in mortgages. Consequently, um, the bubble burst was um, millions of people walking away from homes that they were underwater in. And so Dodd-Frank came about from uh, Congress saying, okay, we don't want this to happen again. Once we bail ourselves out of this, how do we ensure uh, in the future that lenders can't behave like the Wild West and write these predatory notes that borrowers have no understanding of Mm -hmm. and they get them in it today and and, uh, two years from now they default because they can't meet the terms of a loan. Mm -hmm. So that's where Dodd-Frank was born. And um, basically what Dodd-Frank says is that if you originate a note, you are responsible to ensure that you don't have any uh, illegal features, any predatory features uh, in this note. And it's the responsibility, the onus is not on the borrower to understand whether this is a risky note he should or shouldn't stay away from. The responsibility is on you, the loan originator. And so that's the basics of everything that, that we're doing is helping loan originators um, write a note. And we're busy knowing all those uh, yays and nays every day so that those of you out there creating notes don't have to. Now, before I get too deep into it, I want to dispel a, a current myth that seems really big. I hear it almost every day. So it's important to dispel this notion somehow there, there's word going around that we're the loan originator. And that's why they're safe because we're the loan originator. That's not accurate. We're not the loan originator. If you uh, loan money to somebody and you carry the note, you are the loan originator. So for all these people that uh, write to me every day and say, hey, uh, we're bringing a deal to you from uh, Michigan. And they said that, uh, you know, we, we're absolved of liability because you're going to be the loan originator on it. I always try to educate them and say, understand, you are still the loan originator. And it'll say it right on the disclosures uh, that we issue at the, at the end of this. What we are is we're the third party subcontractor that you're hiring to vet your borrower and ensure that you didn't write a note that is not going to be compliant with federal legislation. So that is what we're doing for you is is we're scrutinizing what you bring us and we're also scrutinizing your borrower and we're meeting those eight mandatory criteria that Dodd-Frank set out that credit worthiness has to be vetted in these eight different ways. That's what we're doing for you. Um, And so what that looks like on a daily basis is uh, somebody gets a hold of us and says, hey, we're uh, we're gonna put a deal together and we're in Texas. Uh, what do you want from us? So I send them out a, a newer investors packet and it has basically everything that they would need. Um, and, and I can put out my email before we're done here today. And, and so that if you end up with people saying the same thing, they can get a hold of me, be happy to send it out. Uh, it's step-by-step directions in terms of if you're the uh, note originator, if you're the lender and you found a borrower, here's what you have to do. Step one, step two, step three, step four, uh, and bring it to us. What that looks like specifically would be um, the standard 1003 
uh, or the ERLA, they call it. It is the Universal Residential Mortgage Loan Application. So that's kind of where everything begins with is, is a, a lender would go out and find a, a willing borrower and they would get this 1003 application filled out. Uh, and we've tried to dummy proof it somewhat. Uh, we've highlighted it so that we just encourage them just fill out all the highlighted areas. If you get that, that'll be enough information for us to get started with. Uh, and then there's a document that they have to sign the borrower signing an authorization that allows us to pull their credit. And so uh, it's important that they know that uh, we will be vetting their credit. <clears throat> so there's the application and the uh, authorization to pull credit. And then I've created some paperwork that guides them or the lender on what types of income documents are necessary to prove the claimed income based on how they make their money. And I break it down in um, W-2 wage earner, that would require uh, the two most recent pay stubs and the previous year's W-2. Um, they need to be able to show a two-year income, two-year work history within an industry. Uh, one of the things we're noticing right now is we're getting an awful lot of applications from people that I did one here two or three days ago. The guy worked seven different jobs in 2020. Couldn't do it. Couldn't put it together and, and had to just tell him this, this just doesn't fly. His income is not going to count. Um, so part of credit worthiness is, uh, reliability, consistency, uh, stability. So not everything that Fannie and Freddie would shut the door on, on your borrower on, will we, there's a lot of things we can flex and work that the reason that they're in seller finance, right. Is because maybe they have a credit score under 620 and Fannie and Freddie's already said, no, go, you're out of here. Uh, or they had a bankruptcy three years ago and they shut the door in their face. We can get around a lot of those things, but one of the primary areas we really can't get around, nobody can get around, is people who don't have some degree of stability to their income and to the method they earn their income, uh, primarily with W-2 wage earners. It's, it's these people that switch jobs every 30 days, yeah. uh, almost can't work with those people. And so one of the things that I've done is I've created a lot of borrower pre-screening information in that new investors packet that if somebody new to this will read and study then when they're soliciting for their borrowers you know and they're whatever they're doing uh, i don't know if they're doing radio or they're doing uh newsprint or whatever whatever how whatever method they're dragging borrowers in you know hey if you've been turned down by a traditional lender and you're interested in a home call us and we can help you well when those people pour in there's a method for that lender to do some peripheral, just cursory pre-screening of a borrower before they put everything together and send it to us. I've created what they need to help them know which borrowers to run from versus which borrowers have a legitimate uh, you know, possibility of making it. Mm -hmm. So ideally they pre-screen their borrower and then they send that 1003 application to us. They send the um, <clears throat> authorization to pull credit then we have a form that we ask the lenders to fill out, which is going to be all the terms to the deal. So um, obviously it's going to be the sales price, going to be the loan amount, the APR, the term, going to be uh, all that kind of verbiage like, do you want uh, escrow done? And if so, uh, do you have a servicer? Um, are you going to charge a monthly escrow fee? Uh, who's going to be your settlement company? Are you using a title company or a settlement attorney? Um, do you have late payments? 
So we ask for, we have kind of a template that helps guide that discussion, but we need all the terms of the deal. So that's what the lender would fill out to send in with that application uh, and that uh, borrower's authorization. We don't necessarily need the purchase contract. Um, it's actually easier for us for processing if they just follow that template that we give them because it sort of walks down everything that we would need and just puts it all in that way. And then the last thing would be the uh, income docs that substantiate the income claim. So whether they're self-employed, whether they're a pensioner or whether they're a W-2 wage earner. Mm -hmm. Once that all comes to us, uh, it could be as small as about six documents, right? It could be the application, the borrower's authorization, the term sheet, and then a couple of pay stubs and a W-2. Mm -hmm. That's a deal. We can put it together and, and uh, put this thing out. Typically uh, on a tight package, we can do it in about a two-day turnaround period. So where Fannie and Freddie is, you know, probably minimum 30 days anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and that's if you're lucky. Um, on tight packages with lenders that really understand the game and, and that have followed our, our training that are doing some decent pre-screening. Yeah, it, it's not uncommon to get a package in this morning and put out a decision tomorrow afternoon. Mm -hmm. So, and I know I've had that experience. I, I've I've worked with you and with Rice Russ before uh, on multiple different originations, and and I'll come back to that in a second. But it really is that simple. And sometimes the borrower situation is is what's complicated. And we had one where we're working on where uh, the borrower had lost all their all their important documents, everything in a fire. Uh, so that was a challenge is just trying to get the documentation that we needed um, that, that didn't currently exist. And we had to go back and request it from government sources and stuff. And so that was yeah, a, ca a case of a more challenging uh, case, but, but yeah. I've had it turn around in less than a week. Absolutely. What is a typical issue that you guys run across often where someone's trying to convert from a CFD or lease option to a note? What's the biggest hurdle? From my perspective? Yeah. Uh, um, you know, honestly, that's, uh, that's really not, we don't see any complications with that. All of the complications we see are from the standpoint of ineligible borrowers, borrowers that they're, they're trying to put into a deal that just, there's just no way they're going to be qualified for this. Right. And, and, uh, you know, trying to pull a rabbit out of our hat, we get cre pretty creative with helping people qualify, but there's just some of those borrowers that just, uh, they, they will not, they cannot, um, you know, qualify uh, for the size of the note that people are trying to so put Besides the work history, what would be another common hurdle of disqualification? Yeah, absolutely. Great, great point. Okay, um, on the 1003 application, um, if anybody's familiar with that, um, block eight on page four has declarations. There's about 10 questions there. And what those declarations are is the borrowers answering a bunch of uh, potential deal breakers. Yeah. First question is, do you have any outstanding liens or judgments against you? Yes or no. Um, that breaks a lot of deals. Um, and many times declarations come in and they're blank or they're selectively answered. I just got one yesterday where question number one was not answered by the male borrower. It was by the female borrower and every other answer was answered. 
yeah, interesting. So of course we have to flag that and say, right back to them and say, you didn't answer question one on your declarations. Do you have a judgment against you? Uh, you know, those kinds of things, uh, that stops a lot. Um, borrowers that don't either have a social security number or an ITIN, believe it or not, in a lot of states, we're getting tons of borrowers now that they sign them all up and they send it all to us. And the social security thing is blank. And the question that asks about citizenship says no. And when we investigate, they don't have anything. They don't have an ITIN, they don't have an SSN. That's a deal breaker. Cannot do a deal with somebody if we can't pull their credit. Um, and that's a Dodd-Frank issue. You have to be able to assess their credit worthiness. Well, if they have no method of assessing their credit worthiness, they're out the door. So these are the kind of things that I'm recommending in the training that um, we're teaching lenders to pre-screen their borrowers. There are certain specific questions you wanna ask while you're still just getting to know that borrower long before you ever actually take an application fee and commit them to a contract. You wanna find out, are you dealing with somebody that even has the potential to fly, you know, those, those kinds of deal breakers. Um, the, the SSN, that's got to be uh, a U.S. Social Security. Like they can't be, you come from Canada or Mexico or something. We're, we're yes, not looking at good credit point. from outside of United States. <clears throat> yes, <clears throat> you're right. Yeah, an excellent point because I don't deal with two. You guys are fairly unique. I don't deal with too many um, other than you guys. And so that's a great note to, uh, to mention. Yep, that's right. And um you know, and an ITIN is okay. So we do get a number of them now that don't have an SSN, but they've got an ITIN. That's okay as long as it gets on there and we can pull credit with it. Yeah. Um, that works. Um, one of the other big ones that, that is getting more common all the time, given the demographic we work with, is people that work for cash only. They don't pay taxes and they have no mechanism for proving their income claim. So they write on their 1003 application, you know, under the income statement, make $8,000 a month, self-employed handyman. Great. Looks good. Sounds good. The lender's impressed. But if the lender doesn't know to ask a few questions, by the time it comes to us and we dig deep, we have to burst their bubble and say, well, you know what? This guy doesn't have any bank deposits. He doesn't pay taxes and he doesn't have any 1099s. He literally, everything he's saying he makes is his own uh, promise that that's what he makes. Well, the, the day and age of uh, stated income loans is long gone. Those are no longer legal. And so unfortunately, sometimes I have to burst a, a lender's bubble uh, and, and a borrower as well, right? Because if that lender doesn't know better, well, he gets the borrower all excited. They're, oh, great, you got good income. Excellent, this is a good deal. Well, let me send this off to the underwriter and I'm sure we'll get this put together for you. And then uh, we have to write the Dear John letter back and say, um, sorry to tell you this, but uh, your borrower's income is absolutely worthless because he doesn't have a single stitch of paper that proves he makes the income he claims he makes. Yeah. So again, from the lender standpoint, that's a really quick early pre-screen you're going to want to do when you're talking to borrowers and you say, what's, what's your source of income? Well, I'm a self-employed uh, handyman. Awesome. Do you either have uh, two years business tax returns to substantiate the claim, or can you get us 12 months of current business bank deposits? Because that's what they'll calculate your income on. If you don't have either of those, sorry, can't do. So one thing I wanted just to, to point out here, like um, I know Dave, you're talking about conversions and I know that's, we talk in those terms, but 
but if you break it down, what you're actually doing is you're originating. So if it's going from a CFD to a mortgage, you're not converting from one to another, you're canceling the one and creating another. Correct. So, so it's every time we're talking about um, any kind of a new document, it's, it's just a brand new origination. And then that's why we have to go through the steps and make sure, even if they, they qualified, you know, they were paying under a CFD, they may or not, may not qualify uh, under a new, a new set of terms and a new arrangement. And is that ever state by state or is that across the country? That is across the country. That's federal guidelines. So what state you're in doesn't matter. Um, state to state issues have a little bit of bearing, but not a ton. Uh, for instance, one of the things we're required to do is assess uh, residual income. So not only do these people have to meet a certain debt to income ratio, they also have to have a certain amount of cash reserves at the end of every month, which is going to right, feed them. Uh, it's going to pay their utilities. Um, it's going to put gas in their car. Well, every state's residual income is going to be different because it, the formula we use is based on uh, income taxes, which are different in every state and cost of living, which is different in every state. So if you have a deal where you have a 1800 square foot house and you have uh, a borrower with five dependents in um, California, that residual income is gonna look entirely different than that same borrower with 1800 square foot that has zero dependents in Alabama. Hmm. totally different and so there is a difference in that respect and so for a lender maybe and I get I have a few of these for a lender that does deals all over the country they they send you one from Alabama and they they qualify real easily and so in their mind they think oh good okay two thousand dollar a month income uh did just fine in Alabama hey I got one over here in California ah similar income he should be good to go doesn't even come close to qualifying and I have to explain to them it's the residual income issue that's killing them in California, residual income, you know, you might be 1500 a month short on that same formula. In Alabama, you're 1100 plus. Right. And so there's things like that. Not, not to get lost in the weeds. Lender doesn't have to know all of that. They just have to know, understand that um, things like how many dependents you have um, and what state they're doing the deal in certainly going to affect things like um, residual income. Right. So I think, you know, I've seen some crazy things in the recent time where we saw a loan where the servicing fee was actually written into the contract. Yes. That the borrower pays that servicing fee. Is that something that's just unique or? Are you talking about the origination fee, Dave? Yeah. Where, no, yeah. just actually the monthly servicing, servicing fees. Yeah. No, that's, so. that's, that's escrowed fairly often. So, mm-hmm. yep. No, that's not uncommon at all. And that's legal within limits. Um, escrow service fee as well, you know, typically 30, $35 a month. A lot of uh, you seller lenders are contracting servicing out to a, a loan servicing company. And then when you do, no problem. We just ask for the information on it and uh, tell us what that monthly fee is going to be. And we put it right in. Yep. Very common. No problem. Um, and is that ever where is it adjusted or is that flat number where that transfers to a different servicer? I'm sorry, can you repeat If it transfer to it, like different services have different fees. Yeah. So is it a flat number that no matter what happens, that stays what it is? Or oh, no. does it adjust whatever the servicing fee 
Yep. Yep. It adjusts just like when we escrow taxes and insurance, right? At the time that we vet the borrower, we use what we have. We're not responsible, nor are you, if two years from now, taxes go up by 25% and insurance goes up by 25%. And now this borrower is outside their DTI. You're not responsible for that. And that's one of the beauties of using us is what we're going to do is in real time, at the time that we vet this and this is stamped, we're going to check all that stuff and make sure that your borrower fits in the DTI model and the residual income model for that six-piece PITI, right, which is going to be HOAs, PITI, possibly flood insurance, mm-hmm. um, all of those parameters put in there. He qualifies at the day that we do it, and we issue you a certification of ability to repay, which you put in your file cabinet. Well, if in the next two or three years, insurance and taxes and HOA fees and everything else go up through the roof and that borrower were to default, you're safe, you're legal, and so are we because you don't have an obligation uh, to ensure that those issues don't go up. You have a, the way Dodd-Frank words it is, you have an obligation to be able to prove that you made a good faith effort using reasonably reliable third-party records at the time of origination to ensure that your borrower has the ability to repay the loan. And, and you, you mentioned that, so the ability to repay, and that's what I mentioned to my uh, borrowers or potential borrowers is, is the reason we go through all this underwriting is really that. We're just really trying to establish ability to repay. Amen. So, you know, all things being equal, that's, that's really what we're essentially looking for is just- That is, uh, you're you absolutely right. You boil it down to the uh, hit the nail on the head. The ATR is everything, and that's what we're doing is we're- we're either telling you yay or nay based on ATR. And this is one of the things I get all the time as well. And, and it's frustrating sometimes because it puts us in a position of being a bad guy, yeah. which is I- ironic because it'll be the lender that gets upset with us. And yet it's the lender that hired us to do what we're doing, yeah. right? So we're trying to keep the lender out of hot water. But once in a while, we have to go back to the lender and say, I'm sorry, this guy just can't make it. And then I, I get things like this. Well, that's ridiculous. He pays that much in rent every month already right now. Of course he can do it. And I have to explain whether he can do it or whether he meets the parameters, two different things. Right. So in Dodd-Frank, he might be able to do it realistically. Yeah. But if he's at a 62% DTI while he's doing it, it still won't be considered compliant because he doesn't meet that. Uh, ability to repay parameter of being under 58% debt to income ratio. And so needless to say, uh, for lenders that don't get uh, read in on this, they don't get educated enough to understand it. Sometimes it almost feels antagonistic to them. It feels like they went out and got a good borrower and brought it to me and then I blew the deal up on them. (laughs) And so I spend a lot of time kind of trying to uh, work with lenders to get them to understand I wouldn't be worth what you're paying me if I tell you what you want to hear, right? right? The reason you're hiring me is to give you the hard answers. Sometimes they're going to piss you off, but they're going to make damn sure you don't uh, shut your file cabinet and skip off into the sunset thinking you got a compliant note. And in reality, I set you up for failure. And there are significant penalties for, for not significant penalties. And, And this is important to know if they ever catch you on one, 
the first thing the CFPB yeah. does is bend you over and do the full body search and they take every deal you've ever done and they scrutinize it and it's $25,000 per deal per violation. So it is huge. Not only that, you can lose the asset because uh, a, a sympathetic court is going to say, this family shouldn't have lost their home over this because they were told they qualified and now they don't. Well, too bad. They get to stay in their home. So you could you could lose the asset. Yeah. You could pay $25,000 per penalty and violation. They could literally put you on the chopping block. So oh, it's just yeah. not worth it. Yeah. So uh, in the back of the day when things were going through, one of the most common things with Dodd-Frank was the idea of you can't originate something where owner-occupied. Where are we at now with that? And how what are we doing about that? In terms of your legality to originate an owner-occupied note? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And there's a there's a ton of uh, <clears throat> there's a ton of debate over uh, the exemptions rule, safe harbor, um, qualified mortgage. I could go on for days on all the caveats. And even if you get on a lot of the blogs and hear the attorneys in all 50 states debating it, none of them understand it completely. So I'll try not to muddy the waters and I'll give you the, the most basic explanation I can. Um, what, what the Dodd-Frank ability to repay cover specifically is one to four family occupancy owner occupied. So if you're doing vacant land, you're not required this. If you're putting them into a sixplex, you're not required this. And if it's a rental property that the borrower will never occupy, you're not required to do this. Side note, I do those all day long because lenders have now decided they want this done with them as well because it gives them a, a more easily marketable note mm -hmm. um, because they've got a vetted borrower. Uh, it lowers the likelihood of default. So I, I'm still doing them all the time for people that don't fit the mandatory parameter, but the parameter is owner-occupied, one to four family um, in all 50 states. So can I, I'll add one more exemption is if it's B2B. So if I'm, if yeah. I'm going to originate a loan to a company, uh, some kind of an entity rather than personal name, then, then I don't actually have to go and talk to you at all. <laughs> Correct. And I just did one of those yesterday that is a, an LLC buying and the lender still said, yeah, I want you to do it anyway. Um, and so, so we still can't know. But we can't originate a loan where the owner still occupies a home that was a CFD beforehand and convert it to a no, we cannot do that at all. No, you can. You just okay. have to vet the borrower. Okay. You just have to vet the borrower. So any owner occupied, you can do. But what the law says is that you're responsible as the originator to vet that borrower and not originate a loan that they can't afford the ability to repay it. Yeah. So, yep. So Nathan, I'll let you jump in some of the questions in the chat there that um, are coming. Yeah, I saw Ray and I know Ray and we've talked before and he's a big originator and yeah, he's a good guy. Um, he, he's asking about compliance regarding converting lease option to CFD and I, we may have covered that already. Um, anything to say on that, Max? Um, I say anything? No, to me, really, to me, the, the, the uh, I guess the, the terms we're using don't matter. If it's still an owner occupied, if it's a family that could be put out on the street, if it's a family that could be left homeless because they couldn't afford the note, then it still fits the same parameters. Um, whether you're calling it a CFD or you're calling it a note, 
you're still you're still liable to make sure that your borrower has the ability to repay. Right. And again, we're we're not exactly we we think of it in terms of conversion, but what it really is 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 a, a new origination. Yep. So instead of a lease option, now it's a CFD. So it's a, a new CFD. Yes. Yep. And just so you all know, I've even had people bring me existing notes and just ask us to vet a borrower that's already in, they've already owned the place for two years. Hmm. And the note holder is now saying, you know what, I realized this was never a compliant note. Hmm. And I'm nervous about that. Hmm. Uh, can you do it? Yep. We can still do that as well. And we, we do it all the time. And again, that makes it a more uh, attractive note on the resale as well. Absolutely. You know, he asked another question, Nathan, I'll let you go ahead and handle that as well. Uh, he's asking for an easy way to get underwriting requirements, such as the DTI. Sure. Um, like easiest thing sheet. to do is, is just to, uh, yeah, easiest thing is just to contact me and I'll send you um, an entire investor's packet that breaks it all down for you. But uh, I can also just, while we're talking, I can just throw the figures out as well. I mean, if you take, we only use um, a front end DTI. So, you know, where Fannie and Freddie typically use a front end and a back end. So they're going to use, uh, you know, they're going to use the house. So that that six piece PITI figure, and they're also going to use all other debt. And they have two separate DTIs. It's going to be like 2836. We don't do that. We only use 57 period. So it's an all encompassing DTI. So if you just took your borrowers credible gross income and multiply it by 0.57, that's the total debt they can have. So easy way to think about this would be you got a borrower that says that they make 3000 a month. It, you, you vet them just enough to say, okay, well, you know, can you prove that you haven't in taxes, you haven't in, in W2s, you haven't paid stuff. Yep, absolutely. Okay, great. So you take their 3000, you pencil that down, multiply that by 0.57. That figure is the total debt. Now subtract your P&I, your taxes and your insurance, your HOAs, um, your escrow fees, all that, subtract that from it. Now you get another little figure there. When we pull their credit, everything else in the credit score better fit into that other little figure or they're not gonna make it. And so that's where as a lender, you wanna start going through with your borrower and say, when we pull your credit, what are we gonna find? Car payments, student loan debts, um, credit cards, other installment loans, what else do you have out there and have them tell it to you and pencil it down, subtract that from that other little remaining amount. And if all of that together is more than that 57%, the likelihood of them making it's nil. Mm. So uh, on credit scores, I was going to ask about that or credit reports, I should say, because we're not necessarily looking for a score, a number, nope. we're looking at the report itself and looking yes. for what else are they paying on. Great. Yeah. And I'll go through that real quick for you. <clears throat> so yes, I get this every day. Okay. So credit score, from a standpoint of Dodd-Frank seller finance, credit score itself is relatively irrelevant. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is there is no number that's a deal breaker. I can work with 400. Is a 780 going to make it quicker and easier and better for you? Absolutely. Because I'll have to condition a whole bunch of things on a 400 that I won't on a 780. Mm -hmm. But can we make a 480 in the right circumstances or a 400? Can we make that fly? Absolutely. I did one yesterday that has zero credit score. When we pull it, we get an NA. That means this guy doesn't have a single line of credit. No problem. We can still work with that if he has adequate income. But here's what happens. It's called conditioning. 
And I've got a sheet that I can send anybody that's interested in learning how we condition loans. If you'll study that sheet, you'll be able to pre-anticipate what's going to hold up the loan and ask for it ahead of time. Cool. Give me an example. A credit score under 620 is going to require a VOR, verification of rent. So because their credit score is under 620, we have to establish something outside of the credit score that says this guy's good for his word. Credit score indicates he's probably not good for his word. Fannie and Freddie shut the door in your face and tell you to go home. They're done. That's it. We don't. We condition for it and say, let's help him build some alternative credit. So this says he's not good for his word. Here's what we can get that counteracts that, right? Like, like in a court that says we're going to cross-examine and say, yeah, I know this says he's not good for his word, but we have this other witness over here that says he is. So if the credit score is under 620, one of the conditions to approve the loan will be a verification of rent, which is very specific. It's a 12-month letter. It's got to have the landlord writing a letter saying, John Smith has rented for me for this much time, got to be minimum 12 months. He pays this much money and he's never had a late payment in the last 12 months. That will be a condition to pass for anybody with a credit score under 620. So another good example would be a credit score or not a credit score, but a credit where we don't have a single open line. And I get a lot of these, not a single open line. Okay. So if you talk to your borrower and you're in pre-screening and you say, when we pull your credit, what do you have? And they tell you, I have no credit at all. And you know, right away, you're going to have to tell them, will you be able to bring us a 12 month verification of rent? And I recommend you build your own template. So you just basically hand it to them and say, you'll need to get one of these mm -hmm. and two 12 month credit histories from something on the alternative credit list, which I can also provide you. What that would be like would be uh, <clears throat> car insurance, cell phone, utilities, anything else they pay. So in other words, what we're saying is your credit score, FICO says, you're not good for your word. Mm -hmm. We're allowed to say, we're going to bring in three other 12-month credit histories that debate that and say, no, he is good for his word. So if you have no open lines, you're going to need a VOR and you're going to need two other sources like 12 months of cell phone bill that proves that you pay on time, 12 months of car insurance that says you prove on time, you pay on time. So if I'm a pre-screening lender before I agree to bring this package to call the underwriter, I'm going to have that discussion first of saying, or I'm going to build it right into my paperwork. If you have no open lines of credit, will you be able to provide the verification of rent and two other 12-month payment histories? Yeah. So, um, and even the verification verification of rent. So I've had it actually where I I was the one I had bought a lease option or a CFD, um, and then I was the one collecting payments for those 12 months. So then when we went to underwriting, I was the one writing that letter, yep. and I was completely confident in writing that because. I'm, yes. I'm not relying on someone else's word. I collected those payments. And so Amen. That it was perfect, really easy. Yeah. And I take those all the time, just so you know, somebody might be out there saying, well, if I'm their landlord, is that legit? That is, that is. Dodd-Frank just says, from my standpoint, my obligation is that I use reasonably reliable third-party records. Yeah. Well, that's reasonably reliable. Yeah. Same thing if, um, let's say, we're, we're needing um, a COVID letter, let's say. This is one of the big hot things that's going to happen in 2020. And anybody that brings me a package is going to find this out. 
we're we're now you know we always analyze payments right income is always about six to 18 months behind so if in 2021 you tell us you're making this much money the way we prove that is we review 2020 income well 2020 income has got tons of problems now because so many people had covid hits right they were laid off they had reduced hours whatever so another good example fanny and freddie just say bye-bye go home shut the door in your face they're done we're allowed to rely on reasonably reliable third-party records. So we can't have the employee himself. We can't have the borrower himself write a letter saying, I used to make this much money. I got laid off for six months and now I'm back to making this much money. Here you go. And we say, okay, no, we can't do that. But we can say, can you produce a letter from your employer stating you've worked there this length of time in 2020, you had these kind of hours and you made this kind of money. Then yes, you had a six month period of COVID that kicked your butt, but now you're back to earning full deal. Here's what you're making. And it's reasonably expected that that will continue. Then we can work with that. And so we can take that little blip on the radar and we can excise that and cut it right out. And we can give you credit for your full income. So that's a good example of Dodd-Frank saying, um, we have to rely on reasonably reliable third-party records that's something Fannie and Freddie's not doing. Right. So here's another question for you is, uh, is when we're talking about uh, predatory, non-predatory, what about interest rates? What kind of interest yeah, rates am I allowed to set? Great. Interest rates. Great example. Okay. Um, believe it or not, you have no limit on interest rate. Um, I've done them as high as 15%. Really? So you have no limit on interest rate, but here's the thing. It's another example of since that's a risky feature, then it will have other uh, conditions related to it. So any, uh, we'll talk about HCM real quick, high cost mortgage. Uh, HCM is something you're gonna hear a lot in seller finance. What HCM, the definition of HCM, and if you're a a note originator who's trying to understand all this, you might wanna write this down. This is a pretty good rule of thumb. The, The street rate is called the APOR. You can look it up any day of the week. You can Google what the APOR is. That's the, I, I refer to it as a street rate because it makes more sense, right? That's, that's the rate that you'd get from a conventional lender today if you had ideal credit. So let's say today it's 3.25. Uh, a high cost mortgage is today's APOR street rate plus 6.5%. So if you're writing a note and you're doing a 10% APR, when that gets to me, first thing I do is figure out if that's high cost mortgage or not which is going to be today's street rate plus 6.5%. If it is, that's okay. It's legal, but there's a few conditions then that we'll have to attach to vet the fact that we weren't being predatory. One of which obviously is since it's that much higher, he's still got to meet residual income and he's got to meet DTI. Another one is that Dodd-Frank says he has to have mandatory counseling. He basically has to have something that says, somebody who's not making money off of this loan is sitting this guy down saying, you understand this is a, this is a high cost mortgage. This you're paying a ton of money for this. Well, the way we get around that is we have them do a little internet course. We call it the HCM course. And, and you've probably seen it, Nathan, anybody that's done a deal with us has seen it. So if it comes in, if it flags as a, as an HCM if it flags as a high cost mortgage, just know ahead of time, one condition the borrower is going to have is they're going to have to go to a website that we give them. It's a free course, takes about 20 minutes. 
and they have to produce a little certificate that tells you and me that they got their counseling. They send that back and I get lenders all the time, uh, basically giving me grief about this. Seriously, he's got to go do this course. What's the point of that? And I try to explain to him, the point of that is keeping your butt out of jail. Yeah. It, the law says that if you're putting this guy in a high cost mortgage for an owner occupied home, that's a very risky feature. You're mandated as the loan originator to give this guy counseling. Well, do you want to go send him downtown and give him counseling and have somebody try to talk him out of your loan? Or would you rather have him do my 20 minute internet course that qualifies? It gives him the same thing. It gives you the liability relief of having done it. And it's not going to cause the buyer to come back to you and say, well, you know what? That guy downtown talked me out of it. So I'm gone. Uh, so an HCM certificate is one of the things that we do to protect you if it's a high cost mortgage. And that, so that's interesting. That's a nationwide 6.5? Correct. Plus 6.5? Oh, okay. Correct. I thought that was a little bit more state specific. Nope. Nope. That is federal. There's okay. another one that's an HPML, high priced mortgage loan, and it has different parameters. Uh, and an HPML is the APOR plus 1.5. So you can okay. imagine virtually all seller finance deals yeah. are going to be HPML. Right. And so they've got their own little risky issues as well. So each level of these loans, although they're legal to do, my job is to flag them and then say, if we're putting them in this, then to protect the loan originator, we must require this, this, and this. And so what you're all paying for when you send your stuff to us, even though some people would probably tell you what you're paying for is me to kill your deals. What you're paying for is me to scrutinize all the finite details of this loan against the predatory Dodd-Frank screening criteria and say, that's okay, we can make this fly, mm -hmm. but we're gonna make them jump through this hoop and this hoop and this hoop and this hoop. And if they can, then even though it has all these risky features, this lender is protected. If they can't, then it ain't meant to be and it ain't gonna happen. So I, I know there's another question I just posted over to Nathan. And I'm not sure if you can answer this question. What is the typical cost to do, to run through you? I know, I guess right. depending on the borrower changes that. What is the typical, okay, what's the, the typical cost for it? Okay. Yep, great, awesome. Same all the time, super, super simple. Okay, so you send a package to me, doesn't matter how much it costs, doesn't matter if you have one borrower or five borrowers, doesn't matter if it's a... Uh, anything doesn't matter you send a package to us the first thing we're going to do is we're going to invoice you 119 that pays for our processors to start doing all this research pull credit start digging through everything start communicating with the uh, borrower start sending you out needs lists and do all the data entry so we bill you 119 right off the bat as soon as you pay the 119 we open this thing up we start digging through it and we send you a needs list so we write back to you and we say all right, uh, Nathan, um, here's what we're noticing. Um, this, this isn't in compliance. Your, your late fee is more than 4%. And given this APR, it's going to need to be 4%. Are you okay with us changing it to that? Uh, hey, we noticed that you only included one pay stub. We're going to require two. Uh, this guy missed a block in his declarations about whether he's had any bankruptcies. Please find that for us. We do all of that as soon as that debt's paid. We dig through it and then we, we return a decision to you, you know, and it might be a lot of things. It might be, hey, qualifies, no problem. 
with these conditions, or it might be, hey, you don't have enough income, we recommend you bring in a co-borrower, or we do things like this, we say, hey, Nathan, um, he could potentially qualify for this, but here's what would have to happen. You want 12% on a 180 month note, that puts his P&I way up here, he can't make it. But if you're willing to change it from a 180 note to a 240, he'll make it. Uh, or, hey, um, <clears throat> His, his wife's credit is dragging him down big time and she's not bringing much income to the deal. Uh, see if you can talk them into dropping her from the uh, application. Mm -hmm. And if we just run the guy, he's, he's gonna make it. And they can still put her on title at closing. But so what we do is, is we look for all the ways to make the deal work. What can we do to make the deal work? Mm -hmm. So you, you, uh, we invoice you the 119, you pay it. We start working this deal. Then for everyone that passes, for everyone that we manage to get this thing through and we send out initial disclosures and we tell you, congratulations, your borrower is approved, then we invoice another 380. So the total fee is 499 and that's what it is on every single package. That's why we recommend that you hold out at least 500 in earnest money from your borrower and that's going to reimburse you at closing for our fees. Oh, <clears throat> now, here's another, another great note. Uh, and I've had I've had a few people ask me this. So if we send a package to you and, and you bill us 119 and they don't pass, do we eat that 119? We don't get anything for this. Uh, and the answer is yes, you do eat the 119, but you get a lot for it. And, and I'll explain to you what you get for it. Well, <clears throat> number one, what you get for it is if you think you've already found a quality borrower, then what you got out of this is that we broke this deal down to its absolute finite uh, increments and explain to you exactly how far off this person is qualifying. So now you know what they do qualify for. So you tried to put them in a $180,000 house with a PNI of 1300. You now know that if you find them a house for 1100, you've got a good borrower because we've already vetted them and they're going to make it. They just can't quite make that house. So your 119 isn't thrown away. You've now got this borrower that you can sit down with and go, okay, hey, listen, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, good news. We know exactly what you qualify for. We know that we can qualify you. Bad news is unless you pay off this debt or unless you get an increase in your income or you bring in another co-borrower, we might not be able to make this house work, but here's some other houses that will work for you. And then when you bring that deal back to us, you already know you've got a guy that's going to fly. Yeah, is there any requirements of deposit down payments? Anything 1%, 2%, 20%? There is not. Um, in Fannie and Freddie, there would be, right? They're, they're yeah. going to take a minimum down or nothing. I get some lenders that are comfortable not doing any down whatsoever. Uh, and I get other ones that say, I like 10%. Obviously, historically in seller finance, you guys aren't requiring the, as big of a down as Fannie and Freddie would. My personal recommendation is, and that's what I've done, I, I would never put somebody into a property without a down. Same reason now we're invoicing 119, right? When, when you go into business with anybody, when you make any deal with anybody and they don't have some skin in the game, stand by to pay the price for that, right? Because what's, what's to prevent them from misbehaving when there's no skin in the game? Same reason we hold a deposit, a damage deposit in a first and month's last month's rent from renters of course yeah. you're going to get holes in your wall and uh, kool-aid on your carpet if they don't have any skin in the game yeah so my recommendation is if you have a borrower that can't put a penny down 
you better question whether you really want this guy to be your borrower. Yeah. But no, there is no hard and fast to answer that question. You can go with zero down. You can go with 30% down, 20%. It doesn't matter. So Nathan, I just saw a great, and I know uh, Anthony asked a question about uh, yeah. his own, creating his own test. And I think Anthony, we created a form that I posted in the, in the chat uh, to be able to give to Max and Max will email out all these packets to everyone who's uh, filled the form out. Ray asked a question about 10% being the kind of rule of thumb to go by, um, not to go over there, or you then I guess you have certain things that you have to watch out for. for I think it goes with the 6.5 is what you're referencing, not the 10, where 10 might have been the common number to use yes. because of 6.5. Yes, that's, that's a great point. It, there is no APR that is problematic because it all depends on the day, right? Uh, I mean, for instance, back in the day, the APOR was 11%. So shit, you could have gone, excuse my French. I spent too many years in the firehouse. I apologize. Um, yeah. You, uh, given that, right, if it was a eight or 9% a APR street rate, well, then it wouldn't become HCM until it was over 15. Mm -hmm. When we're at historically low, it becomes HCM. If you just add 6.5 to a 2%, you could be HCM. So wow. don't focus so much on, on that. Just understand that when you send one to me, that's going to be HCM they're going to have to do that internet course. And the reason for the internet course is I'm covering your basis on the mandate that you give this guy counseling. So HCM is nothing to focus on. It's not a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. The kinds of things that are, that you have to be more concerned about is things like um, if you have, let's say late payments, right? Standard in the industry, late payment is 5% of the monthly payment. Um, if you, if you always tell us that you want for late payments, just standard, that's easiest and we'll just make it 5% of the monthly payment. Mm -hmm. But anytime you're uh, HCM, then we've built a trigger in the system to catch it and we have to change it to four because for whatever reason, uh, they decided that anything that's HCM, the max late payment can only be 4% because you're already, you're already nailing this guy with a heck of a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. Little things like that. Um, but we're, that's what we do is we watch for those things. And then uh, we don't just change them. We call you or we write you an email and say, hey, uh, I'm noticing, you know, you're saying you want $100 um, late payment. That's way beyond 4% of your monthly payment. And this is an HCM loan. So do you want us to make it compliant with HCM? Or do you want to change a bunch of other things and stick with your 100? But you can't do both. So that's what we're doing. Okay. And Ray's asking, uh, is it possible just to, to charge the borrower, the buyer, the $120 up front? Uh, yeah. Make like an, an application, application fee. fee. Yeah. Make it an application feature. Sure. Absolutely. And same thing. My answer to them then would be, you know, if a borrower has heartburn with that, mm -hmm. then again, if you're not willing to put any skin in this game, how serious are you? Mm -hmm. And you, you tell your borrower, you say, listen, here's the deal. You give me a 119 application fee. It's not for this one deal. We work with you until we get you something. Mm -hmm. So give me a 119 application fee. And one way or the other, we're going to get you into a house. We, we might have to have Ray on one day, Dave. I, I don't know if you know Ray, but man, he's yeah. got a good system going on. I like, I like what yeah, he does. Yeah, I, I like him. And there's another guy that I think would be really cool. 
because they're doing a lot of what you're saying, Matt. Yeah. They're actually finding the borrower, not the house first. You're talking about Gerard Ori? Yeah, Gerard too, yeah. right? I do so a lot of business with them. Right. Yeah. So the idea is that, they, you know, for those who are watching, they're finding the borrower and saying, what house do you want? Yep. And going and matching with the house versus finding the house that we all think about doing and going, yep. hey, what borrower can fit in my house? Yes. They're finding the borrower and say, okay, where can we put you? What house do you like? We'll buy the house, so I'll finance it to you and write the contract up. Yep. So yeah, I maybe we'll did, do Ray and uh, I just did one for Ray this week. Yeah, yeah. and their, their system's outstanding. And, and here's the other thing. Uh, again, the easy way to do that on this is they pay that 119 fee. You send the package to us. Then you know when we're done with that, you know right up to the Nats Cajones what the total amount this person's qualified for because we've pulled their credit. Now, this is something important to mention though. If you're working with the borrower and you get going, let's say you find them a house, you get a package put together, uh, we invoice you the 119, you pay it, we go to work for you and we give you back a figure, right? And we say, okay, listen, here's their max, their max DTI, given their income, here's the max debt they can have. And then you go back to shopping for the borrower. You've got to have that discussion with the borrower that says, don't take out any more credit because what <laughs> they're famous for, anything. I just had one here about two weeks ago, all qualified, good to go. And all of a sudden they go out and get a $900 a month pickup payment yeah. and they killed the deal. And I'm required by law, even if it's not on the credit report, if, if I become aware of the fact that they've taken out new credit, before the deal closes, and you are also as the loan originator, we're required by law to seek proof of that and assess their DTI for it. So lo and behold, guess what happens? We get the whole deal put together. They're at a DTI of about 44, 45. They make it. Adequate income, good to go. $900 a month truck payment blows the whole thing up. They're at a DTI of 90, and there goes the deal. So what you want to make sure you talk to your borrowers about is don't buy or shop for anything new. If you want a home from me, don't look anywhere else. Freeze yeah. your credit. Don't do anything until we've got you your home because it will be found out and it will kill you. It'll, it'll kill the deal. Yeah. So I, I, I take it a lot in today. I think, you know, Nathan, can you share one of your stories that you've created? You've, you're originating a new loan where you've gone through the process, what it looked like? Sure. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it, it's really as simple as what Max is saying. Um, I, I go, I like, I'll get ahead of myself, but I, I will send over the, the package over to Max and say, okay, so this is what I, this is my new borrower. We're, we're creating this deal. Um, I'll send him some of the numbers and, and just what we're looking at. And then he responds back and sends me out that package. Uh, and then between the borrower and I, we fill out our respective uh, portions. And then I always like to be the relay person rather than having everything go from the underwriter to the borrower. I'd rather be in the middle there. So I always keep myself in the middle. And I don't know if that bothers you, Max, but that's. What, no, that's no, what thank like you. Please, everybody else do that too. Let me tell you. When we have borrowers that, or lenders that refuse to get engaged in the process, they yeah. basically send a package and say, well, let us know if it, if it passes or fails, but deal with the borrower, please, for me. I yeah. can't stand it. 
yeah. can't stand it. So thank you so much. Uh, we want oh, the lender good. engaged. <laughs> yes. It just, it, it usually I, in most cases, um, I'm not necessarily going from a, a straight origination. I'm going from, you know, a lease option to a CFD or something like that. So I've got some kind of relationship with the borrowers already. Uh, so th that's partially why I want to be involved just because I've already spoken with them. Like we've already got a relationship. It's easier and better for me at least uh, to pass those messages along myself. And then I can, I can be the relay person and make sure I know what's going on at any given time. So the one that one, well, one of the ones we recently did was this really tricky one. And it was, it, there were a couple of tricky spots because not only had they lost all their documentation in a fire, but their previous residence was actually in Alberta, Canada. So, so they were dual citizens. So they had the, the U S social security number, which, which saved us there. Uh, but we didn't have the number cause it had burned up in the fire. So we, that was, uh, you know, a challenge. And, and uh, we actually even tried pulling the Canadian credit. Uh, I thought I might have access to that. And then turns out that my credit, credit guys that I use, they're based in Canada, but they're actually only work in the United States. So that didn't work. <laughs> anyway, and it was a little bit tricky. And, and we eventually we had to go with, um, uh, it was a trailer park uh, in Alberta and they had their, their mobile home payments, whatever they call that, the, you know, the rental of the mobile home space, uh, that I think that's what we ended up having to use as one of the documents besides uh, telephone records and not even a cell phone, like we're talking a landline. Lot and, rent. Uh, yeah, it, it was yeah. like old, old school, <laughs> but we got it done and that's awesome. they're happily living in their house down, down in Texas now. Yeah, that's amazing. So this, this space of doing it is really disqualifying that borrower. It's really it's it's not the house it's really the debt on the house and the borrower and can they do it or not do it and that's you know most of the assets that we see that are cfds are low value where typically it's not able to be created because the big banks won't create a, a thirty thousand dollar loan and for us we don't like buying anything that's under a fifty thousand dollar value so most cfds are out of the picture for us but we are seeing more and more of the houses that are bigger with the opportunity to buy the cfd on it um, and you know, you got to know that the loans, especially CFDs, uh, the reason they don't have a conventional loan is because they didn't qualify. Yeah. So, so you just, you have to know that there are going to be some challenges, most likely there, there are going to be some challenges and whether that's, uh, you know, something simple, like they went to the bank and their credit score wasn't high enough, but yep. their DTI is still fine. Then no problem. Then that's a, a real easy uh, loan to get qualified <clears throat> Or it could be something a whole lot more complicated, but yeah, we have one that we're we're looking to buy. It's it's a multi-unit, and they're they're landlords, so it's yeah. even should be even easier for us. And if they are, if they're landlords in their personal name or company name, good question. I believe it's in a, their company name, so that'd be even easier. Easy. So yeah. we're gonna see. We're gonna see. We'll be getting a whole max real shortly, and uh, once we get through this loan and and getting it through. So guys, I posted the link to the form. Uh, in the chat, if you need it, just let us know. We'll we'll get to Max um, to get Max out some package out to you guys. We're looking to do this more, and even the system of finding the borrower and find the home that way, and using that 120 as a leverage to continuously find people's houses for them and make it work. It lets you know what property you can get them into and have a deal made. Let me say one more thing too. Another way you guys can spin this that's going to really make you valuable 
is <clears throat> is from now obviously i'm not advocating that you you hold yourself out to be a professional on this or do anything that could, could that could give you liability but informally these people that you're working with you let them know that once this 119 is paid and we work this file, let's say, and we get it back, right? And so maybe they don't make it and, and we obviously will be sharing the credit report with you and all this information. You can now sit down with these people and say, I'm gonna use all this stuff to help show you how to repair your credit and make yourself that borrower that, hey, keep renting from me in the next six months and we'll have you there. So you're still keeping this person in your network. They're still with you, even though you couldn't get it today. Now you know why they didn't make it, right? You know there's this one thing that has to get fixed in their credit or, or they would be good to go. Or mm. you know, maybe you know that they've got this. Uh, I'll give you one good example. Verizon Wireless is famous for this. People don't pay their Verizon Wireless bill and it goes to collections. Verizon's one of the only companies I know that what will happen is Verizon will keep the account open and they'll assess you the entire amount you owe. Well, when we pull credit, then that entire amount shows up as a monthly payment. Oh, wow. I mean, if I don't find this twice a week, I'm a monkey's uncle. Wow. So here's what happens. Person got great income. They're going to make everything. Four years ago, they didn't pay a Verizon bill and it was 1700. That account is still open on their credit report and they don't know what it is. And so when I pull credit, guess what comes up as a monthly payment? 1700, 1700 blows wow. their DTI up. And so one of the first conditions I have to do is come back and say, you either have to call Verizon and make payment plan and bring that back to us and get that payment down to a certain amount, like, you know, get it down to 80 bucks a month or something or pay it off entirely. But the deals broke because of the 1700. Wow. Well, if that happens and they can't pay that 1700 and they can't do that right now, you're empowered to sit down with them and say, you know, here's the deal. You're a good borrower, except for this. Mm -hmm. Keep renting from me. Stay in touch with me. Mm -hmm. Let's keep working with you and help you get this fixed. Mm -hmm. Also, don't go out and do it again. And hey, in six months, we're going to get you the place you want. And so our service is going to help put you in a position of keeping these borrowers, even if they don't make it today, um, earning their trust and loyalty so that they're staying with you because they say, you know what? I know he's going to still help me get a house. Yeah. Banker won't do that. But even though I don't qualify for today, he's got all my stuff and he's helping me figure out how to square myself away so that I can make it in the future. Yeah. Very interesting. So I would never lose a borrower. If I were you guys, I would keep them in your little black book and, and you're always working with them. And even if they don't qualify today, you're keeping them close to you and you're continuing to keep them in your network. And a broken deal today could still be a winner next month or, or six months from now for you. Fantastic. It's really good. That's, that's tons of good information. Yeah, I, I think lot. that's enough for anybody to, to feel yeah. comfortable originating, converting, whatever you want to call it. But uh, and I, I would yeah, be surprised if some people start making their own business out of this. I mean, the fact that, you know, there's yep. like, you know, Ray and Dante, they are doing this on a regular basis. Yep. Um, I think I was talking to one the other day, they, they go out and they talk to realtors who find borrowers who couldn't qualify and they get their name off of them because they can't find a house for them. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. We know the people, right. And they're just taking their names and running with it, which is great. That's yep. Fantastic. Go, go get to know a bunch of the residential mortgage loan officers in, in whatever town you're working in. Mm -hmm. And, and it, 
I mean, it, it wouldn't be very hard with the right networking to find a whole bunch of people that got turned away that are looking to buy. Yep. Yep. Oh. And all of a sudden, yep, you're helping people. You're helping people that had the door shut in their face. Yeah. Light bulbs going off. So renting is another one. You know, I've been a landlord for 30 years and renting. I can't tell you how many people would love to buy, but they can't. And in many cases, it's two or three small things that if they had somebody, you know, looking at their stuff saying, you know, hey, if you do this, this and this for the next 12 months, mm-hmm. you, we can qualify and you'll be a, you'll be a buyer even though Fanny and Freddie won't talk to you. I mean, the, the, the ability to convert people into buyers that wouldn't be otherwise is ridiculous. It's, it's out there big time. Yeah. So and there's all kinds of incentives for them to do that with taxes and everything else. Like the, it's, it's well worth a while. Yeah. So I'm going to ask unless Nathan answer this question. We got a question from Mark. Why convert a note to a mortgage? What is the problem with just not holding it as a mortgage, as a note, sorry, as a CFD? Why create a CFD, convert it to a mortgage? Why go through all this? What's the advantage in your mind, Nathan, to convert that over and spend the time, effort, and energy? Uh, that's an interesting question because, um, and part of it is personal preference. Um, part of it is uh, looking at different advantages. So there are cases where actually in most cases, for me, I'm actually not going to convert it to a mortgage. I'm just going to keep it as a CFD. I have buyers uh, where I can resell that note back out to a, a CFD buyer. Um, so there's no need in that case. There are other buyers where they do want it as a mortgage. So that'll be even just a term of, of the sale is, well, it has to be converted to a mortgage first. So there's that. There are states where CFDs are definitely an advantage. Uh, and what I mean by that is in case of default and in case of default, it's a whole lot easier and faster and cheaper uh, to, to deal with this default and, and get that property back um, than a mortgage. Uh, so Michigan, uh, a lot of the Rust Belt states are, are some of these. They're yeah. just so much faster and easier. Uh, judicial foreclosure states yeah yeah and then there are other states where say new york florida uh texas i may buy it as a cfd but i would immediately uh, transfer that over to a mortgage because the 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 advantages of a cfd don't actually exist in those states uh they don't recognize cfds as their own thing it has to be a mortgage or, or deed of trust whatever state you're, you happen to be in so in those cases, I would, uh, but that would, for myself, that'd be the only reason I would convert one over to, uh, to a different. Yeah, Aaron made the comment that, you know, there are certain states that require that, even with a CFD, require judicial foreclosure. Yeah. Um, and some don't, which is, um, is so interesting, it, right? And I know that, states. you know, there are, the concern about having a CFD is owning the property. It, right. You have the liability of the property and all that stuff. Even though you have a borrower, you're till, still technically deeded to the property. Right. And sometimes you don't want to be deeded. You don't want that liability. You don't want the insurance situation. You don't want that connection where when you're the note holder, you're you're distanced from that situation. So yeah. Aaron, thanks for jumping in. Uh, Florida doesn't recognize and they're hard for judges to wrap their head around. Yeah, they don't they don't get it. They don't yeah. like them. They don't Jersey, same thing. Like we don't find in Jersey for CFD that just doesn't, you know, we don't wrap here in Jersey. We don't know that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so, so it's easier just to 
convert that over and then you've got a, a solid something in that state. Yeah. So Max, I think that, you know, you guys are, have done a really good job of explaining the, the legality of the process. Cause that's the most important part doing or not doing is a business decision. Yeah. Right. Um, but if I want to do it, but the legality doesn't allow me to, that may or may not allow me to do get into the deal. Right. If I'm like, we're buying a couple of CFDs, but if I don't, if I want them to become a note because I want to be note and I can't, that may strike the deal for me to get into that situation. So I like it. I like it a lot. Um, yeah. And again, you know, you're just, you're, you're originating your, whatever conversion yeah. you're doing, it's just originating to the other instrument. Yeah. So Mark says his CFD is in Michigan. So yeah. uh, hopefully Mark, you'll be able to convert it over with that income ratio and everything else. If you feel like, because Michigan's one of the states where if they default, they can literally go past it and get a foreclosure pretty quickly or eviction. Um, yeah, CFDs in Michigan are, that's one of the best states for them. Yeah, so I wouldn't really convert over actually, if unless you're past the five years, 20% thing. I think that's Michigan and Ohio as well. So Indiana's in that club, yeah. yeah. So, well guys, I appreciate Max having spent this afternoon. I know yeah. you're up in the mountains enjoying yourself. Um, on this Friday, good Friday for everyone. Um, for those who celebrate, hope you guys have a great holiday weekend. Yeah, Easter. Uh, spend time with your family, everything else. Uh, but Max, I appreciate you jumping on and just answering some of the dumb questions we have, but also giving the little details that really need us to know so we understand better of what we need to do moving forward. Yeah. 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 Happy to be here. You bet. And, and I'll, I'll entertain uh, coaching and visiting anytime. So yeah, let me know. Awesome. Very good. Yeah, thanks. All so right, much. guys. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for watching. I appreciate it. And we will talk soon. Take care, everyone. See you next okay. week.